Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. Want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Zoom platform in partnership with the Audio Wave Network Studios inside of the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, sponsored by the Ford Foundation, and we're a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are excited to welcome for the first time Regina Ann Campbell, who serves as the president and chief executive officer of BUILD Institute. BUILD has been around since 2012 and has a vision for Detroit to be the leader of inclusive entrepreneurship. Today, we're going to ask Regina what that means exactly, how is <laughs> the small business infrastructure faring in pandemic Detroit? And since taking the helm at BUILD in 2020, what is her vision for the organization? Regina Ann Campbell, welcome to Authentically Detroit. What up, though, y'all, Detroit and around the world? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it's been a long time coming. It's so good to have you on. How is the day finding you? The day is finding me pretty good, pretty good. Um, the cold ain't as excited about that, but uh, it's, it's been good. Got a lot of things accomplished today with work and my team, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, the cohort for GoDaddy started. So hearing all about the great entrepreneurs and that. So it's been good. I can't complain. I ate, you know, so I'm all good. <laughs> John, I'm going to hear more know? about that cohort, that cohort thing that you mentioned. Yeah. So we got we to gotta talk about that Certainly. Later on. Yeah. Donna, how you doing? I'm good. I'm, um, you know, it's, is it hump day? It's always throws me off after King day. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's a short week and we don't realize it. Yeah. It's a short week and it throws me off. You know, I don't get outside every day, but my COVID test came back negative today. Uh, we didn't have any positive tests. We do weekly testing in partnership with the trade health department. Once a month we do it with the health department and otherwise we do it on our own, but um, you know, I start getting paranoid and I came back negative. So, Well, we are happy that you are well, right? Yeah. And um, as part of your self-care, I'm going to challenge you to at least step outside once every single day, get some of that air. You can't, you say you don't get outside every day. That is unacceptable, Donna Givens-Davidson. Go outside. <laughs> Listen, I'm not, I'm not eager to go outside when it's super cold. I, I get out most days, but today was not a day that I got out. I got out <laughs> yesterday, the day before, you know, um, I, okay. I almost broke my hand. I don't know what I did to it. Oh injured. my gosh. Oh. <laughs> what in the world? I, it, it, it's a weird thing because uh, you guys, we're recording this show a day late because the King holiday kind of threw us off. We normally record on Tuesday nights and it's, it's, we're recording this on Wednesday. It's just, it's so now you not going outside 
you almost breaking your hand. What is going on with you, Donna? I don't know, clumsiness. It runs in the family. I was um, I tripped up the stairs on my Ooh. way up to my my daughter moved into a new apartment building. And so I was walking up the stairs, oh, wow. tripped, fell, hit my hand somehow, hit my head on the wall. It was ridiculous. I was laying on the floor oh. like I was just a fool. It, yeah. How go long ago slow was to this? go fast. This was on Friday. Did you go to the doctor? Yeah, I'm not going anywhere in, 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 in any medical COVID situation. I am like, you know, WebMD. You better call okay? your primary care physician. But, but I and might actually down. go to the doctor if my hand does not improve. <laughs> I keep thinking it's better. And then something hits mm -hmm. it and it's really, really painful. But I'm convinced it's a sprain, not a hairline fracture. And okay, because you went to, to medical school. You went to I did. I went to Google you Medical School. MD, so I went to, and listen, everybody goes to Google Medical School right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing my own research on what's wrong with my hand. Okay. And I'm not letting you look and picking the diagnosis that you prefer it to be, right? <laughs> it's my this body, Orlando. <laughs> All right. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm doing well. Again, uh, Wednesday came really, really quickly. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this past weekend was the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. And, you know, as I do every single year, I think a lot about uh, Dr. King, his vision, Dr. King's radicalism that uh, has been sort of washed over solely because he gave a great, great speech at the March on Washington in 1960, what, 1962 or three, I have a dream. And, you know, one of the things that I have been pondering on is before Dr. King got into his I have a dream stanza of that speech, he was talking about uh, economic justice, um, economic prosperity for the most marginalized among us, especially Black folk. He was talking about, oh, he was talking against gradualism as, pro as progress um, in America, the little by little, the piecemealing of progress. He was talking about the bad check that America has given Black folk and it has come back insufficient funds. And so that's the part that we never really talk about that a lot of folks tend to forget about. And, you know, I, I just sort of watched um, people in power and folks in our community talk about Dr. King on King Day to really just sort of ascertain where folks were um, along this continuum. Um, if folks really had been like students of Dr. King and what he stood for, or, uh, this performativity that comes on days like that. And so I've just been sort of melancholy, just watching. Like, hmm. I heard somebody say that, you know, Dr. King would be proud of the progress that we have made in this country. And, you know, if we call it progress, okay. But were you really a student of Dr. King to say that so confidently? <laughs> it's like, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> it, really, it really angers me. He was not <laughs> fighting for unity. And, you know, I, I really struggle with, did he give his life or was it taken from him? You know, I mm -hmm. think that when he gives his life, it almost makes it look like this is something that should have happened. His desired outcome, um, his desired outcome was racial justice. The outcome of the fight for racial justice is somebody took his life, right? He knew yeah. he was encountering risk, but he did not just say, you know what, I want to die. It's not suicide mission. It was not, you know, let me just figure out. He wasn't trying to, you know, like you have the monks self-immolating. 
he was living his life fighting for people and he was not fighting for unity. He was fighting for desegregation. He was fighting to remove black people from being treated like second-class Americans. So when I hear racist white people call black people racist for talking about race because Martin Luther King wanted us all to be the same, it's like you have completely perverted his message. And the other thing that I keep in mind is that although everybody seems to love him now, um, when he was alive and in the fight, he was treated like he was being um, investigated by the FBI. He was being harassed. His family was threatened. He had to live under guard. And he was treated like a pariah, even in some parts of the Black community, among people who didn't want to stir things Especially up. I remember a letter from the Birmingham jail when yeah. he had to say, you know, listen, I know I'm coming into your town and I'm starting this fight and I know you think you have better ideas. But injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I think about the marches in Detroit around racial justice and about the fact that when people were fighting, people were saying, well, these aren't real Detroiters. Therefore, their, um, their, their advocacy doesn't matter here because they need to go to their own communities and fight. And I always think of Martin Luther King in Birmingham and, and some of everywhere else and Memphis, at the table and there. Yeah, I think though too though it it's really a matter of economic justice. If you look at our history and those who were were murdered, it's when they began to talk about economics and equity from the perspective of, of what um, Detroit Black leaders Don Dandridge always says. When he talks about equity, it's not just about sharing resources; it's really about sharing power. And so, a lot of what Dr. King stood for to me, he won was for thinking in the head of his time. I really don't think, to your point, Orlando, people really understand what the heck he was really saying. Even when it says an injustice to one is an injustice to us all, people don't realize what he was saying was when you overlook the injustices that have happened to Black people in this nation, better believe that an injustice will continue to happen to other groups. And we see it over time. We've seen when they start racial profiling the Indian community, right? And we start seeing when they were racial, uh, racial profiling the Latinx community, right? And so all of these injustices, you know, LGBTQ, when you allow things to happen to one particular community, they, it, it spills over to a next, right? And so we can talk about slavery and how you can still purchase a human being in our nation. And so until you write um, and change the injustices, it will continue to be cyclical and happen to every single community and people will be touched by it. And so this economic thing, um, the true purpose or um, voice of Martin Luther King is often misrepresented, no different than the Civil War. That was an economic uh, reason. People, the reason why the Civil War wasn't to save the slaves and end slavery for Black people, the history, it was really about economics and the South was getting extremely strong and Virginia is still one of the most wealthiest states. But I think we could go <laughs> on Wait, and on and on. You have to put race at the center about, of that, right? About... You have to put race at the center of that because that economic justice, the economic power of the South did not exist outside of the outside stolen of labor, labor and imprisonment of black people in Absolutely. forced labor camps. It's not as though it, they just knew how to do business better. Racism and black anti-blackness was at the center of it all. We live in a society right now where we are still using exploited labor, whether it is migrant farmers or whether it is exploited labor overseas to enrich people in the United States, primarily white people. And I do wanna say, although I do support black business ownership, 
he was anti-poverty and anti-poverty and black capitalism are two different things. And I think it's important for us to understand the anti-poverty is a thing in and of itself. It is, nobody should be poor. It is not, everybody should have the opportunity to open up a business so they can be like white people. In fact, I don't think that Martin Luther King was a capitalist. I believe he was a democratic socialist who believed no. that the resources of the state should be shared among the people of the state. And so even as we talk about him, I think if you read him and you study him, it's important to understand he was a radical. A radical. The king was talking radical, about a Jesus beloved was a radical. You know, and so when we start looking yeah. at radicals in the tradition of Christianity or people who consider themselves following Christ, you know, Jesus was about radical redistribution. And Martin Luther King was about radical redistribution. All of the prophets, all of the people who really pave a way for us to move forward are about that. And I absolutely agree with you. I don't believe Martin Luther King preferred black people over Asian people, over poor white people. I believe Martin Luther King loved people and believed all people should have equality. His fight in America was largely centered around black Americans. However, when we went to war in Vietnam, he also was saying that we had no business exploiting people in Vietnam and he was actually anti-war. And that was one of the things that alienated him even from some black radicals. So for me, um, when I think about, you know, looking back and looking forward, I think it's important for us to understand that if you believe nobody should be poor, you can have businesses, you can have nonprofits, you can have foundations, but poverty should never be allowable within those constructs. And, and that blank check that was said earlier, it needs to be made whole. I mean, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, um, real estate and land is the equalizer. It has been for a long time. We continue to see development happening. It is where many have built their wealth and continue to build wealth as in land. Um, you know, and as a social entrepreneur myself, you know, I have some um some properties and lots uh, in Memphis. And so they have to um, make us whole. Uh, You know, entrepreneurship to me, it is definitely one path and it's a path that I've, you know, have close to my heart. It's a path to, um, you know, well-being and and, uh, making an income and a lifestyle. Um, Many in our communities and history have been entrepreneurs. It is also a market that um, regardless of socioeconomic um, background, uh, race, you know, create it, one can be uh, and create something for themselves. So um, there's a variety of ways, but I also know that there need, we need to be made whole, both from a policy side and a community side, because policy really impacted uh, Blacks in America and where we are. And so policy needs to help fix it and uh, cash along the way. I believe people should be able to start businesses, own businesses, and be in charge of their own fate. I believe in Black business ownership. I believe in Black business ownership is high. We do well as a community. I believe the foundation of it has to be a social safety net that holds people from poverty so that you are not having desperate people engaging in things. And that's where the only thing I would say is that we have to have both. And I think that we've gotten away from that as a nation. We've gotten away from having a social safety net or even believing that it's necessary. And so I want to see more movement towards that. You shouldn't have to earn a certain amount of money to have a home, to have water, to have food, to have things that should be treated as basic human rights. And the only thing I'll say about that further is that when this nation was founded, before it was a nation, there was no land ownership. 
land ownership was brought to us by the same people who brought slaves and took land from other people. I think that we have existed, people have existed in this world fairly without ownership. To function in this economic system, you've got to have ownership, you've got to have business ownership, you have to all of those things. And as long as we're here, we're going to have to do those things. I'm not opposed to that. But I feel like, you know, when I was born in 1963, there was more of a social safety net then than there is at 58 years old. And it's crazy to me that we've gone backwards from this concept that no child should go hungry and this war on poverty to this, you know, mindset that poor people are the problem. And you see it now in Congress where Senator Manchin on the Democratic side and Senator Cinnamon, yes, I called her that again, Orlando, um, Cinnamon are saying, you know, we don't know, we don't want people to get lazy. If people are not hungry, if people are not, um, you know, thirsty, if people are not struggling, they won't have the impulse to work. And I don't think that's true. In fact, I think it's true that in the city of Detroit, we have so many people who are so bad off that they have no ability to work. I think the more you stabilize people, um, the, the better it all gets. So anyway, um, I'm hopeful. That's, that's systems how I'm are, doing. That's how our I'm systems doing. Are broken. Yeah. <laughs> and our systems say? are broken. That's what you, <laughs> I don't know to say that's what you're doing. I the said, that's how I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what you know, you know, just to put a button on this, because the question was how I was doing, and then we went into that because um, I was thinking about Dr. King and um, uh, Regina. You said something that sort of has me, has my my wheels and mind turning. There are so many places when we talk about spatial racism, when we talk about the movement of land. Um, I also think about uh, the many, many spaces within these shores that have been ground zero for white terrorism on black bodies. Memphis being ground zero for terrorism on black bodies, bodies, specifically the place where Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered. And when we talk about repair, I'm thinking about the new task force that was approved by voters this past December here in the city of Detroit, the reparations task force. And I would love to get uh, Lauren Hood, Council President Mary Sheffield on to talk about, uh, number one, where where is Council um, on that, on the building of that task force? What is the mandate of that mm -hmm. task force? And how can we begin to, the process of, of repair um, and hopefully serve as a model for other cities who are trying to think through uh, this same thing, especially a city like Memphis. I know folks from Memphis. I know Black folks from Memphis. And they don't really talk about this terrorism that they've experienced. They don't really talk about uh, being the place uh, that, that where Martin Luther King was murdered. That's not something that they're proud of, that, you know, a lot of folks from Memphis are proud of, or really. So we, you know, I'm just, you know, thoughts, thoughts for future uh, shows, uh, Council President uh, Mary Sheffield, Lauren Hood, you, you're definitely, definitely. <laughs> and you know, we're, there's so many examples of terror, racial terror in Detroit. So many oh, yeah, examples sure. of people being burned out of homes, people having property taken from us, the destruction of Urban Black Renewal. Wall Street in the city of Detroit, and Paradise Valley Correct. taking property. Uh, can we go on? <laughs> oh well, but when you look at the state policy or the city uh, and state policy in Detroit. And the continued real estate takings into until today, where you look at the 
um, you know, the, the, the tax foreclosures, the selling of all of these mortgages without regulation to protect consumers, um, no consumer protections. And then you look at the sheer loss of wealth in the black community as a result of that is crazy. Not yeah. just people who had their houses taken, but people who lived down the street whose homes were devalued as a result of other people having their houses taken to the point where we just lost billions of dollars in real estate ownership. And that, that those dollars did not just you know, get lost by us, but they were transferred largely to white people. So we're not even talking about you know, post-reconstruction. We're talking about in the 2000s, in this century, having some of those things happen. Um, I still right, and to, to your point though, everything is cyclical. Um, so the urban planner in me and one who has always been about cities and watching patterns, it's always cyclical because we haven't ever stopped it. We haven't ever changed the policies or the loopholes that have allowed for this to continue. So the same practices are implemented generation after generation. So until it's stopped, this will continue to be a cyclical thing. So you have the process of people moving out of cities and now back in cities using some of the same strategies, methods, tactics, policies that allowed it to happen, right? I mean, we can go on and on. And even about when you talk about the police, the laws, until the laws are changed, there will be continue to be things that happened in the 1960s and before that we know are happening now. It's the law, it's policy, it's legislators, you know, and we really have to change that to see real change along with what we, we're doing. But if you don't change the law, we're still stuck in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. Right. And, and, but, you know, changing the law is important too, because we've changed it called it something new and this exact same policy mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. it's like in the 1940s we had urban renewal now we have blight removal same mm -hmm. thing yeah same exactly process, just got a new name in exactly. the 1960s we called it model cities we just keep calling it something different and the same beneficiaries keep on you know coming in and so i think that we have to look beyond what they call things to the impact of things and then reparations going back to reparations accountability for vast misdeeds you cannot mm -hmm. strip billions of dollars from black families in our community and walk away and say well that was past policy now we've moved on there's nobody else who you strip wealth from and just turn your back and say oops my bad how are we, oops, my batting, tax foreclosures, water shutoffs, um, mortgage foreclosures, a whole corrupt system where we bailed out the banks and not the people. So I think that that's where, for me, I come in and say, again, we need to have ownership. I want us to have land ownership. Absolutely. We need land ownership. We need um, collective ownership. And we need business ownership. We need to repair and restore the business um community that once existed in Detroit and is still at risk. Mm -hmm. And I know we're going to talk about that, but we need laws and policies to make those things sustainable so that they can't be snatched away in five years or 10 years through some new policy that looks just like the old one hundred years ago. So your your point is well taken, Regina. It is the same thing. And when you look back at it, it's like what? <laughs> so anyway. All right, guys, it is time for hot takes where we run down some of the top <laughs> Headlines in the city of Detroit for hot takes. We have ex-Detroit Councilman Andre Spivey gets two-year sentence in bribery case. Donna, what say you? I say it's a sad day in our city. Um, you know, when it's somebody you know, you can never be anything but sad when they are sentenced. 
And, um, you know, last year there were two people, I believe, who pled guilty to a crime and one of them got prison time and that's the black man. So you have to look at the racial implications there. Now, one was in um, county, I think Wayne County Court, and the other one was in federal court, different standards, different offenses, but it hurts. I think it hurts to see our people going, and um, Orlando pointed this out to me, there are hundreds of letters that were written in support of him from all different types of people. Um, But ultimately, Judge Victoria Roberts, who I know personally, who's my sister's mentor, um, said, you know, um, these, these types of crimes matter. And you got to look at that too. Because when people are accepting money in exchange for votes, these are the things they know he caught, was caught on. You know, there's already a widespread cynicism in Detroit that city council members are for sale and that people are not acting in their best interest. And then you have this happen. And there is a um, enduring impact on the electorate, whether people don't feel like voting matters because our politicians are for sale. Um, You have to look at certain decisions and ask yourself, wait a minute, if these things did not exist, would things have been different? And one thing I noticed is um, a lot of the letter writers tended to look at this as a mistake. Well, he made a mistake and he did make a mistake. Um, or he made some decisions to engage in behavior that he knew was criminal, because you got to know that's criminal behavior. And, um, and, And it's not like these are victimless crimes. When you represent District 4, where I live, where you used to live, Orlando, when you represent District 4, and I, I believe you live in District 4, don't you, Regina? Or you no, did live in Sheffield. District 4. Yeah, but I did live but in District 4. But you did live in yeah. District 4 mm-hmm. during part, a portion of this time, I mm-hmm. believe. When you live in District 4 and your representative is taking money from people who are not like you, then somehow that is one way to um, continue the laws and policies that have affected us for so long. Look at the injustice in the um, look at the injustice in the Fiat Chrysler deal, which you know could have been done differently to protect the environmental health of people. Because the other thing is, if you poison the environment of people where people live, you're destroying their property values. Also, if you poison the air near my home, my property value plummets, and also my health and my well-being. And so um, there were not protections put in place, and he had the opportunity to do that. When you look at his vote on the uh, proposal in when there were certain city council members who said, let's come together and let's make sure that we add teeth to this. So that when proposal N is voted in, we make sure that there's some accountability for some of the things we wanna see happen, like making homes available, some of these vacant homes available for people who are low income or um, people who've had their houses taken by tax foreclosure. Um, because of with illegal, you know, tax assessments, those kinds of considerations were swept under the rug, they moved forward. And I'm not, I have no evidence that that was a consequence of him accepting money. But I do know that he did accept money in exchange for promises to vote a certain way. And that just is very hurtful as well. So uh, I'll be honest, I'm, it's, it's a sad day. I feel bad for him. I feel bad for our community. You know, one of the things that um, continues to come up for me is the the literal beating that uh, so many of the electorate and even the non-electorate in Detroit that has happened upon our psyche and our attitude when it comes to electoral politics in our city. Um, Donna, 
eloquently outlined the level of cynicism that happens in part of communities. And I've seen that firsthand as a community organizer going door to door and talking to people on their porches about uh, participating um, in the democratic process. And, you know, all too often I got the question, uh, why, why would me, why would my participation matter? Because folks are just going to be do whatever it is that they want. Um, and at the time we were, you know, coming out of the largest municipal bankruptcy that this country has seen. I think that uh, there is a tremendous amount of repair that we have to do in addition to electing a brand new city council, right? Um, I'm all for having conversations about ethics, but I, I think about the psyche and the level of cynicism that so many of us have it, it, I think it requires a different conversation and a different kind of reckoning and a different kind of healing if we are going to increase democratic participation and trust in our city. Not, not, not trust in the form of putting a rubber stamp on whatever it is that our elected officials do. We should have a healthy questioning and critique of our electoral politics, but trust it, but a, an amount of trust in actually just going to the polls and participating and you know putting uh, folks that you feel like represent you in office to represent your best interests. And I don't think um, that we're doing that at scale. I think that um, all of these instances uh, with Spivey, with Leland and you know the, the investigation into other council members feed into this psyche and this narrative that you know politics uh, in Detroit are corrupt. And that's a narrative that we haven't been able to shake for a long time. And I think in order for us to really, really increase citizen productivity um, and, 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 and citizen, citizen participation, we have to deal with that. It's a hard conversation, but we have to have it. And so being somebody who worked with the late Marion Mahaffey and understanding with the council being what it meant to be a public servant. I've seen what that means. It's changed um, over so many years where it's like residents or community, we work for the elected official. Um, so part of what you're saying, Orlando, is them going out into community and being approachable. Um, I know I've had instances in the past where as a resident, I would go up to certain council members in the past and try to have a conversation about whether it be a proposal or perspective and was shot down immediately or talked to rude or they would run away from us, um, which is different from how council used to move. And so again, um, I think one way to regain the trust of community and um, decrease the cynicism is getting out in community and actually being a down-to-earth person that people can actually talk to and relate to and being heard. Um, so that's, that's, I think, one part of it. Um, and then, too, I'm going to say this because it is it's, it's politics. And I also believe that there's nothing new under the sun. So the instances of today around, you know, bribery and other things, there's been certain politicians, I'm sure over the years and since politicians have been around who have done transactional deals. The difference is one, what comes to light and whether or not they've been a value add to community in ways the community is like, well, look, we got what we needed. 
nowadays community isn't getting what they need while these deals are being done. So that's part of the issue too. Uh, this isn't the first or last politicians that we will see, uh, you might as well say, put in the public. It's disappointing um, from, from two facets for me. One, these are people with families. I felt immediately sad because, you know, you got, you got families who um, have to deal with this burden. And then two, as a Black community, we're always quick to um, set the person on fire. Um, and, you know, I won't bring up the uh, Kwame Kilpatrick part, but people planted a seed and Black people burned it down. Um, and being someone also, finally, I'll just say who works in council, a lot of times I had the opportunity to read the documents, know what was going on behind the decisions that were made. And oftentimes people aren't doing their research. They're going off of what's been told to them and they form an opinion. And I say this, it's so much easier to deflect on everything else with everybody else and be cynical than to do things to better what's going on for us in community and have a different perspective. It's so easy to follow the crowd. Um, and there's some things we just don't know. Yeah, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, this is my city council person, professionally and personally. I met with Andre Spivey and I had a closer relationship with him than anybody on city council. And I know these issues because I studied them, advocated for them and was very involved in the process. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when I hear community members saying that $500 million was over assessed in property taxes, this we do know. And what we yeah. do know is that we did not leverage the position ever to, um, to, to say, listen, we're going to, um, we just, there's no plan to pay it back. It's sort of like, well, that happened in another administration, bankruptcy absolved of us our debt, let's move on. And it's easier to move on if you are a person who was not harmed or a community that was not harmed than if you're a community that was. Because the harm is not just to the individual, the harm is to a whole neighborhood. When I first got to Eastside Community Network in, the 2000, in 2016, I was talking to residents in the Chandler Park neighborhood about all of the houses that were damaged. People were sitting outside on their porches trying to make sure that people who purchased these houses at auction didn't burn them down. And they lost their housing values too. We need city council members who are conscious of that and fighting for that and speaking up on the other side because Lord knows people with money don't need advocates in the city. And the issue is when you're elected to represent people, do people feel as though you are fighting for them? How do we allow a deal to go through with Fiat Chrysler and with three weeks, given three weeks notice and they knew about that deal over a year before it happened and nothing happened, nobody was told. We heard rumors, you had land swaps taking place and you didn't have representation from the city council person to fight and say, if you're going to open up a plant here, we need environmental protections in place. After the fact, it's too late. So now you're living with people where there's been three violations of air quality on a single block behind the plant within from August until now, and just a complete loss of faith. So when people also hear that this city council person has accepted money in exchange for votes, it goes to reaffirm a belief that this person is not fighting for us. And, and, and know, I hear you, there's, I think, several examples. I mean, we can go back to when um, a lot of the um, city employees' pensions were cut. So were there's still several people cut from that and several people who aren't whole from decisions that have been made 
by politicians and um, there, there are several, right? And so um, it boils down to having the right people and you have to have a majority of people who are willing to work together and vote for something, right? It's, it's a very tricky situation to get things done. And oftentimes people are at odds or focusing on other priorities. Uh, and, yeah. we, and we keep going backwards, 10 steps right. backwards. Um, again, I feel sorry for people who are still struggling. Their pensions are still getting cut. Absolutely. Um, and insurance is being impacted um, after all the work that's been done. So there are several losses, people who lost homes then. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of hard, a hardship on top of being, you know, in this, in this pandemic, right? Um, but... I don't know who who runs right. Who who wants I, to run? I, I also just well, I, 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 I want to hats off to Letitia Johnson. Hats <laughs> off to Letitia Johnson. Hats off to um, Angelique Calloway. Um, what Angelique is her last Calloway. name? Collins. What what Angelique Calloway? Hats off to um, the folks who I've seen at the council table just since January, asking questions, making demands, saying no, we're not going to go along with this. We're going to really challenge this. We're going to speak up for our citizens. You may not win the vote, but I need, just need to know that you're going to vote for me. Mary Sheffield has consistently voted on behalf of her constituents. You know, well, Donna, you're already in the second hot take. So why don't you just take it from here? We're coming from uh, a British Detroit article. Uh, New Detroit City Council members outlined their priorities by Olivia Lewis. Uh, Donna, continue. Well, I mean, uh, I think that we've had a number of changes to City Council again. Angela Whitfield Callaway has come out with gangbusters. I watched the Internal Operations Committee, which is chaired by Letitia Johnson last week. And Angelique said, no, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to ask questions. She's asking questions, demanding answers. At city council um, table this week, I saw Mary Waters really, you know, asking questions and demanding answers. And sometimes they're gonna vote with the administration, but you know, they're asking the questions at the council table and not sweeping it under the rug. And I think that um, it's that kind of leadership that we, we need to see. We have, um, I have not always agreed with James Tate and his decisions at the city council table. But what I can say is I believe he is a man of principle and he is a council member pro tem. I believe that Mary Sheffield is a council person of principle who has stated, this is where I stand on many issues. Um, you know, I heard them say, let's revisit the community benefits agreements so that we don't have uh, uh, the abilities to have runarounds. And I really appreciate hearing that at the city council table. So for the first time in years, I feel represented there. And I actually have confidence that um, Letitia will continue representing us because she did it before she got into office. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. We have um, some leadership changes. Um, you I know, love that term cautious optimism. I love it <laughs> well, you know, because you know you you can't know. But I can no, say no. there's some criticisms. The things are not clear. Um, I think well, that one of the criticisms is, and I don't even know if this is on part of city council, but I think this definitely speaks to the reelected city clerk around accessing agendas, records, notes, meet minutes, and things for uh, these city council uh, meetings. The, the city clerk is supposed to provide, you know, reasonable access to these agendas and these minutes. And people half the time don't know where to find it. That is just unacceptable. <laughs> it really is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And it's getting old. Yeah, but Mayor Sheffield <laughs> has pledged 
that that's one of her top priorities. You don't have to wait on the clerk. Um, I'd say give them a little bit of space. It's only been a couple of weeks and, you know, getting things electronically there yeah. will take time. Um, I do appreciate the fact that our um, council president has made it a priority to be more accessible and transparent. And so I think that when people say that's what they're going to do, we can hold them accountable for it, giving them a reasonable amount of time to develop the systems to put those things in place. Because it's, it, nothing can happen overnight, especially dealing with bureaucracies. Yeah, but and I'm, I, heard, I heard her in the interview today talk about one of the, the main priorities is to pass a right to counsel ordinance. And that will be uh, major for so many people in our city. We are a majority renter city. Um, and based upon uh, the average income of the Detroiter, folks need help. Folks need counsel. Um, when they are dealing with these uh, landlords and property management companies. Uh, Gail Perry Mason, she owns, but I, I was renting and somebody else on Facebook is renting somewhere. And we are having all of these issues with mm -hmm. property management companies and landlords. And uh, we need help. Detroiters need help. And so I appreciate uh, Council President Sheffield uh, giving voice to that and really trying to get that right. So as Donna stated, I too am cautiously, cautiously optimistic. She is actually my representative. I now live in District 5. And so I'm actually proud to say that Mary Sheffield is my council uh, representative and will continue to ask those rigorous questions that uh, need to be asked uh, for us mm -hmm. to make progress. With, with 15 minutes left, um, I want to uh, wrap up hot <laughs> If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at authenticallydetroit at gmail.com. Uh, okay, so we have Regina Ann Campbell here with us, and we're excited. Oh, Orlando, um, I don't, my, my event does not start until 630, my, oh. my engagement, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I don't have a heart stop in 15 minutes if we need okay, to great. give Regina more time, because I know she has a lot to say. Great. Okay, great, great. Okay. Uh, so we have uh, Regina Ann Campbell here as our special guest. And we're excited to dig into uh, what's really happening with uh, the small business landscape here in pandemic written Detroit. Uh, but first, uh, Regina, I want to allow our listeners to be introduced to you. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? And tell us why economic development? Why entrepreneurship? So um, first again, thank y'all for having me. It's a privilege to be among two of my favorite people, really authentic Detroiters you are and who I continue to learn from and quite frankly, learn more and more about you and what you do and why you are these radicalists who speak truth and do really great things and um, all that. So who am I? I like to say I'm a native Detroiter who... Um, Grew up on the west side, used to be the best side, but I live on the east side now, which I've been living on the east side say, for some clean time. Clean it up, clean it up. For some time, and, um, you know, um, Sheffield is also uh, our, my council person, and she's been doing a great job. Um, second eldest of five, basically, um, I like to say I was the oldest. I went to Cooley. I think some people still remember Cooley High. <laughs> uh, and I like to say that I have always loved cities, quite frankly, uh, from the time I was little. Loved um, shopping in stores, worked in a retail store, worked in a record store, all of that. And um, loved the vibrancy of Detroit. And I can remember when uh, 
Uh, so I was 16 years old, about to take the bus down to recorder's core Frank Murphy's to meet my dad to go to um, Nikki's because he's a Luddy pizza. And it took forever for the bus to come. And uh, my Grand River near Greenfield, and I'm looking like, oh, that store is closed. It's closed. And it really bothered me. Y'all. I stood there waiting on that bus to come forever. It was really hurting my heart about having seen the community change so much. And I said back then, my 16-year-old self, I'm going to help Detroit Revitalize. I had no idea what that meant. But I knew I wanted to help small businesses launch, grow. I knew I wanted to be a customer again of local businesses in Detroit and other cities. And so over time, um, life has been, I've been blessed to find what's called economic development and work with uh, businesses. Um, and I, it, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, seeing the city change and evolve towards really great things. Um, also like to me is where small businesses, where community building happens. So ultimately that's for me at its core special because you can only go into a small business and see somebody you know, or meet new people and rebuild community, right? They say there's two Detroits and small businesses help us connect in ways that um, sort of day-to-day -day in business or you might as well say at the office or walking down the street might not but when I go in a coffee shop or that retail spot and do some yoga we begin to get to know one another care about one another um, and that's an important relationship so I'm a mom of two young men I say that now because they're not kids or babies anymore uh, and uh, Terrence who's my husband so my three T so that's a little bit about me, I think. I don't know that it was cool or anything, but that's me. No, it is cool. <laughs> you have you have the story of so many Detroiters, the memory, um, the fond memory of so many Detroiters being able to, you know, get on public transit in the city and go to some of their favorite places, right? Um, we so you're you're the president and CEO of Build Institute. Build Institute has been around since 2012, and you know the mission is to you know, ensure that Detroit is at the top when we talk about inclusive entrepreneurship. And so I'm going to ask you to talk about some of the obstacles that BUILD has been facing and trying to service the vast entrepreneurship ecosystem in Detroit during a pandemic. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I want to start by saying one of the biggest things that I've observed um, during this past year is that people assume that build is this big machine one in that. So like you said, we've been no, around since big. 2012. No, been around since 2012, but you know, the history for build is that it started as a pilot um, out of Dehive where there were a couple of entities that rolled out to be their own individual programs. So you had build that rolled out to be a program, became a part of the DDP, the Downtown Detroit Partnership and the Detroit Experience Factory rolled out on their own. So all the way up until about 2018, build finally became its own nonprofit. And I don't think people really understand that build is young um, in regards to being a nonprofit moved into his own space. The founder, April Jones-Boyle, moved into the space late uh, fall, early, early winter of 2019, and COVID hit. So the support to be able to support entrepreneurs naturally being able to convert, uh, come in person, that impacted BUILD a lot. Mm. Um, 
So we had to move everything virtual. That being said, um, because Build has such a strong legacy with entrepreneurs and to date have worked with 2,119, um, we've been able to continue to support them with entrepreneurial education virtually. But capital, I think you all hear that all the time, that capital is a barrier for a lot of the entrepreneurs we serve. Um, because when we provide the best entrepreneurial education, and I don't know if you all know that our education is based on national standards, um, and that's what we're known for. And we've matched them with subject matter experts. The barrier is often capital. Um, and so this past year for us, we've worked on uh, helping fill some of those capital gaps. So I'm excited that this quarter we will be launching two particular loan funds. Oh. And uh, we have a project that we'll be doing um, in the Michigan Central District that will have some grants. And so one of the things that I wanted to do within this first year is really expand our services from ideation because Build had always done ideation. And I love ideas, right? You need a bunch of ideas to get into market. But during that time, I looked at the data and it showed that we had entrepreneurs who were in a proof of concept and justified stage, y'all. And so these entrepreneurs uh, can't go to a bank yet. Some of them can't go to a CDFI. So this past year for me has been about bringing on programs and resources, best capital and entrepreneurial education to help those proof of concept and justify, justify stage businesses be able to sustain because businesses are struggling to stay open and being able to grow. Um, one way we're doing that too is uh, data. And y'all know that it showed COVID pandemic most of our businesses aren't online. And so uh, with the GoDaddy cohort project, we are able to have 150 entrepreneurs go through the core classes to learn about the value add of a website and cybersecurity, but also oh, websites. Hence GoDaddy. Okay, I'm like, GoDaddy, what is this? <laughs> so we're excited about that for our Detroit market for business owners who did not have an e-commerce platform uh, that can help them with um, opportunities for sales. And so um, we are really about this stage of business for Build is about helping those existing micro businesses who are community-based sustain and grow. And the North Star is the banks. The North Star for us is Goldman Sachs. Um, we also want to expand more into Michigan. Um, we've been in other parts of Michigan. We are also in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And as of January last year, Brennan's in Florida. And so the mission, to your point earlier, Orlando, when you were like, be the, the nation's inclusive entrepreneurial um, uh, organization, we definitely are about uh, scaling and expanding our reach to like minds, like vision and mission, uh, including, you know, a goal is to, to make ourselves known in rural communities as well. Entrepreneurs are everywhere. Y'all know I worked in Memphis, worked with entrepreneurs, so we are everywhere. And um, this past first year has really been about understanding the data and bringing in services that our entrepreneurs who graduated said this is what they need. So this mm. year has been interesting when I've looked at it. Um, um, in our work on the east side of Detroit on Mac Avenue, we've seen several businesses open, you know, mm -hmm. and it's been mm -hmm. really, really exciting to see new businesses opening, including new restaurants. 
But then um, today we learned that um, the Detroit Vegan Soul is closing in West Village. And I think Detroit Vegan Soul was the last restaurant on that strip, yeah. you know, on Agnes Street. So we're seeing this, you know, difference. And one thing I noticed is, um, mm. I don't know if I've been able to order Detroit Vegan Soul via the online ordering apps. Um, and I don't know, so I, I was wondering whether this was the ability of a business to adjust, whether it's the physical location. What, how do you explain the differences and outcomes between businesses that are succeeding in this environment and those that are failing? Mm, great question. I think that's a great question. Um, first, I'll say it's a matter of timing. You got some people who are starting new businesses, so they have all the resources to start now. Um, whereas you have those who have been in business and um, have been challenged with staying open because of the pandemic. And we know that um, Vegan Soul, and I was so sad to read that as well, had two locations. Um, and being a small business, trying to manage both and determine like what resources go where can be tough um, as far as expenses for the bottom line. I know of some businesses similar to Detroit Vegan Soul who had to make the decision to close one of the locations because it began to be too costly. Sometimes they cooked from one and had to transfer to the other and back and forth. And resources supplies are very hard to get right now. So I'm sure there were a number of things on why that decision was made. Um, Again, you know, it's unfortunate and we, because she's a bill grad, I plan on asking her like what happened so that I can better understand what that need was. But earlier I said things are cyclical and this isn't the first season where we've seen businesses closing and businesses opening. For us though, this is an opportunity for us to address um, and help slow down and stop the closing of businesses, small businesses. And there's a number of elements. Go ahead, Donna. I'm sorry, go on. And I, I have a follow-up question, but I wanna hear what you're gonna say. So to me, there's a number of elements that continue to impact the history or the, the, the life of our small businesses. And I say this from a perspective of somebody who is a planner, economic development, I'm always watching trends on why our businesses aren't successful. Um, and in, in Memphis, I looked at a number of things. And one, we can talk about capital, we can talk about entrepreneurial education. Another piece was the mental health and wellness of the individual and business owners, which oftentimes in our ecosystems, people totally forget about the human dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then third, labor. All day, labor for small businesses have continued to be a challenge and a struggle. So what we see when they've gotten the capital, when they have um, the entrepreneurial education, the labor, consistent, reliable, trained labor has been a thorn in the side of small business for decades. And so one of the things that we were exploring in Memphis, and I've been talking to folks about here about regarding workforce, because BUILD isn't a workforce uh, development organization, but there is a way to create a workforce aggregator that cross trains employees to do retail, to do restaurant stuff, and an opportunity for this employee to get maybe 20 hours up the street at the restaurant or 20 hours up the street at another restaurant, 40 hours a week plus benefits. 
the one challenge that we're seeing for businesses, and you asked about this, Orlando, is being able to hire and have consistent employees. I've gone to restaurants in Detroit that are closed because they can't keep employees. We've mm. got to solve the labor piece. We've got to solve the capital piece for micro businesses, this labor piece ongoing that impacts small businesses throughout our country, and well as well this human health and wellness dynamic. So I always like to think of this three, or this sort of this triangle, those three pieces. We can have a solution that can slow down and stop this cyclical change of businesses closing despite a pandemic. Right. Um, and so I wanted to go there. Thank you. That, that, that was great. I really appreciate that. That was really informative um, because I do believe there's differences. And I had never even thought about the mental health and well-being of business owners that some of them, especially in this pandemic, have been sick, have lost family members and are dealing with all the same crap the rest of us are dealing with. And that would have to have an impact on business stability. But we, you know, we look at business labor and businesses, a lot of times when we are working in professional circles, we look at um, management training, we look at building the capacity of managers to create um, healthy workplaces and things like that. You don't hear about that as often when you're talking about um, retail and small business labor. It's almost as though um, if people aren't working out, it's their fault and we need to train them well, we don't always look at the business owner as being responsible for creating a climate and conditions where employees feel safe, where mm -hmm. they feel valued. And, you know, even setting salaries in a way where people feel as though it's worth my while. Does, do you have any thoughts on that in terms mm -hmm. of some of the differences in business? And is Certainly. that a part of the, the inclusive vision? <laughs> so, so, so certainly. I, I'll start with saying um, nonprofits, particularly of small nonprofits, are like these small businesses. And as the leader of Build Institute, I'm building that culture that you're talking about, Donna. It's almost like, have you been in the conversations with the state of Michigan, Jonathan, and them? Because a lot of times we are talking about exactly what you said, the importance of business owners um, building cultures where people feel valued, safe, and are paid according to their talent and they're being trained so to exactly what you said is exactly what the um the state economic development the leo group in those conversations are saying they're looking for ways to be able to train these employers to have a great culture a safe culture people to feel valued and to pay so i agree with you 100 percent on that um and how important that is. And so again, I know the state is working on something like that as a leader of an organization. And I know you can relate, I'm building that exact culture. And the result of the culture I'm building has a lot to do with the experiences that I've had and cultures that I've been in. And so um, I understand the need for it being a safe space, a need for paying people according to their talent. And another thing too is we've done what many of you are doing, which is um, a degree would be nice, but I say all day, every day, and Lord knows I got a bunch of degrees. I learned the most about doing and walking. Um, so you have a lot of people out here who right. are brilliant and talented and don't have a piece of paper I, I, yeah, love and, so, I love that you're saying that because that's where race equity comes in, right? Mm -hmm. 
Regina, can you talk a little bit about how you're how you're building that culture? Uh, I believe you were at the Detroit Policy Conference in July at the Aretha, and you talked mm-hmm. about you know building culture, but also co-designing equitable products and interventions with like the the actual end users at the table. How mm-hmm. are you doing that? Um, what does that process look like? It means listening, talking, and asking the questions to entrepreneurs and quite frankly, to my team. Um, The one thing that I know is you can have a great idea all day or it may not even be a great idea, but you only know if it makes sense if you include those to help shape it and guide it. Um, And I exist, let me just say I exist. I told you all I work with businesses. Build exists to serve entrepreneurs and community, period. Mm -hmm. And so they know what they need. So why wouldn't I have them in the room helping me design? Actually, we procure services from a lot of entrepreneurs. It's like me, I'm a parent. How's somebody gonna tell me what I want for my job, right? So you gotta bring people into the room. So that's always important. Um, They're smarter, they've been through it. And I'll listen to the people who um, have the biggest concerns who can tell us where our blind sides is and what we don't know. Cause to me, that's where the innovation happens too. And what have um, you learned in that process, especially with folks who have big concerns, who are uh, in your face telling you what you ain't doing, what have you learned? That we have to provide action and tangible results. Mm. People have to be able to see it and touch it. Whereas you can talk about it, that don't bring no value to our entrepreneurs. So um, I know you all know this because I see it in your work and down at the action, the result that people can pick up and touch and apply in real time. Um, Being a nice person, Regina, a nice person, that ain't doing nothing for a business. So that's the one thing I've learned from our entrepreneurs and people who want to start businesses is like, where the money, where the resource? And how do I apply this in real time? And so that's the intentionality around designing and co-designing programs and opportunities with the entrepreneur in mind and asking them, for example, we asked on a survey in a minute, uh, when would y'all prefer to have a class? You know, or when would you prefer to do this versus what I've done in the past? Oh, I'm I'm guilty of, I'm always continuing to grow, being like, oh, it's going to be this day and that day. And then you wonder why people ain't showing up. And blame them. I do want to go back to your comments about um, credentials because credentials are a way of weeding out certain types of Mm -hmm. people. And a lot of times the people we say we can't find, we can't find because our requirements don't make them available. And so we end up having an all white workforce because, you know, we know black men, but we haven't changed our requirements. We haven't broadened anything. So I think going back to the job description, description and really looking at equity there is super mm-hmm. important. I do, you know, there's the, the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Detroit is super confusing to me. I'll be honest with you. It's like an alphabet soup. And so um, I don't know, and I, I'm talking to you today is really clear. I'm getting a better understanding where Build Institute starts, where Prosperous ends. Can you describe the ecosystem and the specific niche you occupy in business development in Detroit? I sure can. So build is what's considered ideation and early stage. Okay. 
So right. data shows that we support micro businesses and those are folks who are 10 or less employees. Uh, micro business data shows that people have $250,000, uh, at least 250, well, no, uh, maximum $250,000 annual revenue. But in the Detroit market, businesses have $25,000 or less. They are community-based businesses. So that's retails, uh, wholesale, small-scale manufacturers, e-commerce. We don't support tech businesses or um, high growth. That's not our sweet spot. We are their proof of concept, justify stage. Trying to figure out their business model, their revenue model. Um, so we are about launching your idea, getting you to where you're sustained and grow so you can go to a bank or a Goldman Sachs. That being said, Build's niche is the entrepreneurial education. That's why it's called the Institute. When you think of learning institutions that we've gone to, whether you know high school, colleges, trade associations, that's where you learn the nuts and bolts to go out and do, whether you're starting your business or work for somebody else. So we have national standard education, hands down. Um, then also capital is important. And so we got this Kiva, which has been a part of BUILD since um, early 2012, 2013, because it was launched in the first place was in BUILD Institute in the nation. So capital and then Detroit Soup is ours as well. And then other these mm -hmm. other new um, capital opportunities because I learned uh, and I'm sure you all know in my career in this is like, okay, we provided this best entrepreneurial education and subject matter experts and they got money. They need, mo they need money. So those elements are where we are. And again, it's for early stage businesses um, who can't go to a bank, um, community-based businesses, primarily so we focus on Blacks and um, African-Americans, uh, Latinx immigrants and women. Mm -hmm. um, and I know people always say people of color, but I gotta say people of color because, you know, again, Black men are also a part of this and rooms that, you know, I go in as well. So um, that's where we are. Um, and I think if you were to look at, if you were to look at where we are as far as the ecosystem, most of us are early stage. Right. That's what I'm saying. You know, you're early stage, but I think your approach is possibly different because mm -hmm. we have been working with Prosperous to bring businesses in. Um, I know one time um, Built Institute was having classes at um, MASH Detroit, which is now the MAC mm -hmm. market, um, and was part in partnership with Marlowe. Um, how do we get the Build Institute back on the east side? Is it something that we can look at partnering with you with so that businesses mm -hmm. in our community don't have to travel all the way to your beautiful offices in Corktown? Mm -hmm. Certainly. So the plan is, you know, pre-COVID, um, classes were in person. Right now, they've all been virtual, which means people can join us from everywhere. Now, once we can open back up, we're going to have a both ends. And our goal is to start having classes in community. So I definitely welcome that conversation um, so we can meet entrepreneurs where they are. That is one of the things we do. And we definitely look forward to being able to go uh, back into community. Um, so we Regina, can definitely talk about that. Yeah, I, I know it. I know it is extremely difficult to, I think 
to, to think outside of COVID. I think we have two lives, our lives before COVID and now our lives in COVID. And you, mm-hmm. you came uh, to the presidency EOC during mm-hmm. uh, COVID. And so I'm wondering, you know, should we get out of this or this pandemic becomes an endemic and we learn to live with it? Um, what, kind, what kind of vision do you have for this organization to grow it? Uh, you left and you came back. Yeah. Um, we've had some, you know, you and I have had conversations around why you love this city, why this city frustrates you, you know, so many, so many conversations. And now you, you're at the helm of Build Institute. And I'm wondering what kind of vision you have towards its trajectory and growth. Uh, well, I like to say um, the next normal. One of the things that I've been conscious about when I returned to Detroit in the lead build is to move like change is coming, like there's a next normal. So this past year has been sort of testing things, doing them at the wall and mm-hmm. see what sticks. So what I see for build is exactly what we plan for for this year around resources. We will have hybrid where we are going to still do virtual. There will be in-person opportunities in community. Um, we also have our pilot space. So I'm excited about having more entrepreneurs popping up and helping support them in their businesses. So that'll continue. And as soon as popping we can up peak, in brick and mortar places, like actually. So like up. the marketplace, but then we also have our own pilot space. And so okay. um, I look forward to an opportunity for you all to see it. Um, we are going to get it renovated and even more of a cool uh It'll be more of a cool environment too, but we definitely want to have marketplaces in other parts of the city for a variety of entrepreneurs. So uh, with COVID, so to speak, the next normal, we're gonna continue with precautions, um, you know, masks and making sure that uh, we follow guidelines, but literally we have been about, and I've been intentional about, okay, let's move as though we are in our next normal. So that means, you know, I'm going to the office, you know, I'm planning accordingly for classes and I'm hopeful that, uh, optimistically hopeful that spring we can um, have a, a first in-person class. Um, don't know where that will be yet, but definitely I'm planning and thinking this is possible. And so that's how I'm moving um, in such a way that say, look, this is what it's gonna be. This is what we're gonna do. This is how we're gonna move. Is, is Build Institute sort of mapping where uh, these entrepreneurs that are in the ideation stage, number one, where are they coming from and where do they wanna be, especially if they're brick and mortar. Uh, you talked about, um, you talked about at your policy talk, you know, vibrant corridors. And I know that we have strategic focus areas here in the city on part of the mayoral administration, but a lot of folks exist outside mm-hmm. of those focus areas. And I wanna get a sense from you as to where folks are coming from and where do folks wanna be if they're in brick and mortar space? So for us, we definitely are tracking where our um, participants and people who inquire are coming from. And literally they're coming from all over the city, Wayne County, uh, we even get some in Oakland County. Um, I know our capital person has worked with folks like Flint and Kalamazoo. And so for us, the beauty of BUILD is that we um, are headquarters in Detroit, but we can be wherever our entrepreneurs are, particularly the virtual environment allows us to do that. 
any opportunities to uh, expand to other places is us partnering with folks, training other folks in community. That's one of the things that I want to do, start training people in specific community to facilitate the classes. Okay. Um, so that's opportunity for um, folks to facilitate, get paid to facilitate, um, and build their own uh, part of our build network within a certain neighborhood. So for the east side or what you all are doing, being able to train trainers over there who can train. Uh, folks with some of the classes. Um, so um, just being excited about what that could look like uh, even more. And two, for me, just as a professional, it really hasn't been as much as where people want to go because most people have often, well, I want to go downtown. I want to go Midtown. I want to go to um, um, Indian Village. And then there are ones who say Highland Park. With mm. any entrepreneur, the due diligence around helping them think through the locations so they can determine what's the best for them. Okay. Because there are times when I know people want to go downtown, it's like, oh, Indian Village or um, Eastside Mac will probably be best because of what they were offering, understanding what the marketplace was over there. So we're going to do our due diligence. I feel like people, if their heart is they got a vision and they're like, look, I want to be in this particular neighborhood because I grew up here. It's really about us helping them figure out what's necessary for them to launch there. Not to say, oh, you don't want to go over there because it's A, B, C, and D. If this is what you're thinking to do, this is what it takes. This is the resource that it needs. And um, it may take, you know, three years or so for um, things to happen. And, and build also, because we're not specific geographic, I, I like this role in that I don't have to be specific to a focus area. Right. I can meet entrepreneurs where they are because oftentimes people are left out. And what did I say about Bill? We want to be inclusive and accessible. And so I'm really working hard to uh, remove barriers that I see or entrepreneurs may see say is there that I haven't seen. Because again, I'm not accessible if there's barriers. And so we don't have barriers around us. Um, so we can be entrepreneurs where they are. So one of the challenges, and you know, we're looking at revitalizing our commercial corridor. And I know that um, you and Orlando have talked about commercial revitalization of corridors. You've um, been talking about that. We have all of these buildings on Mac Avenue, for example. And a lot of the owners have not put any money into the buildings for some time. They're sitting there. They don't have, they don't know what they're going to charge for the, the building. Um, we, you know, and I know that when Arthur Jemison was in Detroit, he talked about, um, oh, sorry, hold on. I'm I sorry. just want to remind the listeners as I like talked about that this happens, that this is also, this is Donna Gibbons Davidson's podcast too. So, I, so, <laughs> so what he wants to remind people is I don't have his tech savvy in terms of science. <laughs> because uh, it's not like I'm calling somebody. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, we, we don't have white box businesses. We don't necessarily have the capacity to um, mm. to just move people in easily. It's and so it's harder to move yeah. people into certain neighborhood locations without some pre-development work taking place or mm -hmm. something. Um, and I've talked to other businesses who've gotten like Match Detroit grants and they have not been able to move into any place because the real estate is the barrier. How do we address that? Well, um, hopefully getting access or the city giving property or the county 
for a dollar uh, and doing capital campaigns to raise funding to renovate those spaces. I know one of the dreams that I've had and um, we as a team have had, we've applied for grants to be able to do that, be able to purchase some real estate so that we can own and white box it and have places for entrepreneurs to move in while also creating opportunities for them over time to buy it, mm -hmm. um, you know, low cost. So as nonprofits, we need access and uh, ownership of that real estate. And we can control and manage um, what the rents will be because, you know, like I know, again, what I say, things are cyclical, that over time in, in Detroit, there was a time when, you know, you could get a space uh, at a reasonable rate and many people have gotten priced out. Uh, so if nonprofits own the real estate, they have an opportunity to stabilize it uh, and, um be more directly involved and engaged. So I'm hopeful around different policies and opportunities for people to provide, give, no, not provide, give us nonprofits real estate <laughs> for a dollar or for zero. There have been times when certain schools, there's nonprofits who got these schools and other real estate for uh, zero or a dollar. Uh. So that will be the game changer. All and if we profits are not equal, though. You you know that. You know, I know. We now here's, here. not have the same political but, connections. But we will continue to ask. That <laughs> is the game changer. That is what will change what we're talking about right now. Us owning the real estate, us having access to the real estate then we can manage and have some autonomy over commercial districts and create vibrancy. Also add to equity, people, everybody not getting priced out and there's opportunity yeah. for folks. So well, that's the only way. And I, and I believe I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> cautiously <laughs> optimistic that we can get there. People well, ask, know, what I, do we need? I, you know, we I, need. I just think we have to look at the nonprofit report that was completed. Um, yeah, that was part of hot. Week, yeah, that was going to be one of our hot takes we'll by um, Coac Detroit. That points out the discrepancy and disparity in resources between Black-owned and Black-run nonprofits. How many of us have Black staff? Our assets and our access to capital, and we've got to deal with that on a policy level. Also, mm -hmm. we've got to say if we want to have an economically just city, then we've got to equip those of us who are in the field now you know, uh, with the resources to do it. Cause I don't have any problem with somebody having that issue, that, that mm -hmm. access, as long as others do as well. Mm -hmm. um, I do have to go because I have another engagement until 9 p.m. This is a light night for me. Ooh. So um, yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So if you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. I got a couple. I want to shout out the Coalition for Property Tax Justice. They are hosting, you know, headed up by the amazing Professor Bernadette Atuhine. Uh, they are hosting uh, um, a forum this Saturday. Uh, around uh, you know the inflated um, overassessments um, that we have talked about and continue to talk about that overtax Detroiters by six hundred million dollars this Saturday, featuring so many folks. But uh, one of the main features is uh, City Council President Mary Sheffield. Uh, go to the Coalition for Property Tax Justice's website or their social media pages to register for that. 
Um, I also would like to shout out a local artist by the name of Jonathan Harris, who so palpably demonstrated the whitewashing of Black history and radicalism with a viral painting of, you know, some of our beloved figures um, during the civil rights era and a white person sort of taking a broad brush of white paint and painting over them, essentially erasing them. It's, it's, a, it, it's a viral photo. Um, and I'm happy to say that he's one of uh, Detroit's own. And I want to shout out our friend, Frances Shoanika Goss, on her appointment to the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. I don't even know how you get on something like that. I don't know how you're considered to be on something like that. But she's that's awesome. boss. She's so awesome. Yeah, that's boss. Awesome. Congratulations, mm -hmm. Anika. Any shout outs, Donna? <laughs> Absolutely. I want to shout out um, Chase Cantrell. Um, Aaron Mindry um, runs the dig and he is on um, paternity leave. And so while he's done, he has community members um, who are contributing to his newsletter every week. And it's, this is Chase Cantrell's week. I think I have the explanation right. Um, That's so right. Dig, <laughs> he um, did an article on the cost barriers to housing renovation and equity implications. It is absolutely outstanding. Um, I have a clear sense of what's going on. He gives great examples. So I think everybody should read this if you really want to understand why it's so important for us to advocate for public subsidy into acquiring rehabbing this, these vacant homes. 92,000 vacant homes in the city of Detroit. And we torn down about 19000 to the tune of about $750,000. So it's not cheap. There's got to be a better way to put these back into productive um, use uh, hands. And part of it has to do with banking policy. Part of it just has to do with local subsidies. So I was really excited to read that. I want to shout out um, Alaya Harvey Quinn um, from Forest Detroit on her report, Building Peace, A Vision for a Freer, Safer Detroit a freer, safer Detroit is absolutely well done. She has such an amazing vision. Um, I'm proud mama because Aaliyah came to work for me when she was 22 years old and to see her now thriving and growing in her place is simply amazing. So that's gonna be put out to the community. And I know that she has some recommendations also for how we can use public dollars to support a new way of doing business. And then finally, I wanna shout out to my hubby, Kevin Davidson, and the Charles Wright Museum for opening the King Tut exhibit. I want to tell you, I was like a work widow this past month and a half. I'm like, okay, it's the holiday season. Can you not work? And he's like, no, we've got this exhibit. So if you all don't know how much work goes into building it, they're building walls, they're putting, you know, building all of these cases, um, all of the electrical that goes in, but it's there, it's beautiful. And I encourage everybody to check it out. And also vote yes on the millage for the Charles Wright Museum. When you start talking about cyclical change, funding goes up and down, but when we can institutionalize funding for our precious resources, our community, one of the largest African-American museums in the world, the largest in the U.S. until the Smithsonian. Opens. Until the Smithsonian. We've got to invest in our own. And that museum speaks to us, proud Black people in the city of Detroit. So... I also would like to shout out uh, the new class of LEAP Sustainability Fellows. Uh, that's Ooh. where Donna is headed to. I'm excited to see some of the projects and work that come out of that. And I want to give a special shout out to uh, Donna Marie Brown, Alondra Bolger, Yodit Mesfin Johnson, Madhavi Reddy, and Shamil Dobbs, who uh, all really collaborated 
um, with Data Driven Detroit and a few others to produce that nonprofit census report that I hope to talk about uh, in the coming weeks. So hopefully we can get one or a few of them on the show to talk about that. So yeah. uh, Regina, do you have shout out? I would love to shout out Pamela Lewis, New Economy Initiative. She yes, has stepped Pam! down oh and uh, moving to um, Pittsburgh. Um, she laid the groundwork uh, along with Don Jones for our entrepreneurial ecosystem, which has resulted in best practices for our nation and for the world. And so a shout out to uh, Pamela. And then also to Pierre Baton, um, a shout out to him. As you know, he's transitioned on to J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, so that's exciting. And then just a shout out to um, Dawn Dandridge, uh, Detroit Black Leaders, who is really moving forward the, the language around equity, what equity means, uh, not just resource. It is really about sharing power. Um, and to our youth, y'all hang in there. Things have been virtual and tough for our young folk out there in school, K through 12, college. Y'all hang in there. We will get to the next normal. Yes. We want to thank you all so much for rocking with us. Thank you for listening. And we want you to catch the wave.